Welcome to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast and to what is going to be an exciting new adventure. For the newbies listening, this is the third in our series of visits to the great feasts and the practice in life after journeys into critical thinking and politics. Grab your popcorn, a few friends and be ready to think outside the box. This is the ideological turn and it's a good one. P.S. It comes with free practice tips and a real fascist. We always live together. Think about that for a second. We have no absolute escape from others' company. Whether human or non-human. We are, as it were, caught in a perpetual state of relationship. Autonomy be damned. And yet there is also room to move. Spaces to inhabit. Intensities of togetherness to be explored, deepened or cut off. Many of the relationships in our daily lives are visible. Yet many, if not more, are hidden and invisible much of the time. Some even left unattended for entire lifetimes. These relationships span multiple planes from the personal and deeply intimate to the professional, global and abstract. It turns out that the phenomenology of being is the phenomenology of togetherness. Or, worded differently, to be alive is to be in perpetual participation. But there's more to this, for we can never live in the world in its entirety, or have a hope to capture it all. This means our participation is always partial, fractional, and incomplete. Being together is thus the story of our limits as well as our immersion, in a world that we barely pay attention to, or give much of ourselves to either. Our senses, after all, can only grasp a whisper of the world, and its unfolding and emergent potential, an unarrestable and ongoing decay. On the one hand, our Buddhist friends speak of interdependence and interconnectedness, and, in a sense, each term offers us a matter-of-fact observation about our state in this world. On the other, each can appear as a sort of spiritual imaginary item one too often abstracted out towards a desire for unity in a narrative of wholeness, rather than an invitation to discover basic characteristics of our human condition, or more accurately, of the condition of all things animate and inanimate. So why is this observation of togetherness important? There are two reasons that are most apparent for the direction of this new turn. The first is that the practicing life demands we confront our experience of being in company with the vast array of others and dispel the myth of the solitary luminary that heads off on his own to leave behind the mundane world of man. This entails dismantling many myths. Above all, the idea of absolute individualism or total free will. These myths have held us back in myriad ways and wed us to a deeply dysfunctional set of assumptions 
about our place and role in this world. The second reason leads off from this. The recovery of a livable space the size of our Earth from the machine of industry and consumerism for the many species, and not the few, will require a long series of epochal changes that will disrupt the foundations of much of what we consider normal in Western society and civilization as a whole. These changes range from the individual to the collective, from our individual experiences of subjectivity to massive material changes that span the many spheres of human practice, education, governance, economics, and yes, even religion, or spirituality if you prefer that word. One step for us in the practicing life is to build more sophisticated and appropriate means for imaging and imagining ourselves in the world as we continue to face and loosen up the often overbearing heritage of the world's great Abrahamic religions. In this process, the individual must not be abandoned, for immense danger lies that way, but it must be recalibrated to a world in which it is intimately bound, so that its sense of meaning honors the many things and is intimately woven back into them. To make this move, we must contend with the most fascinating sphere of life for the vast majority of us. Our blind spot, if you will. Our unavoidable addiction. Our human world. But of course, we don't see or experience that well enough. We are hampered by our own visions, and our own concerns, and our own addictions to certain ways of being. So what concepts do we have available to us right now? for making sense of the human world beyond our skin and our overbearing tendency to interpret in ways that are self-serving. Well, there are many that come to us from philosophy to religion, from modern-day spirituality to psychology and sociology, each with its own opportunities and risks for entrapment. But by now, regular listeners should be used to thinking beyond the confines of a given system of thought. So the risks, rather than being risks, are actually part of the fascinating terrain of a practicing life, rather than something to fear. Now terms and concepts these days can be extremely rich and complex, and often require unpacking, at least for us to journey in some way of the direction together. This is partly due to disagreements on meaning, and that complexity. And matching such terms to some form of reality <laughs> is not at all easy. So we might begin by accepting each term as a practice item that can be used in an attempt to make sense of what we can and cannot see in ourselves, in our relationship with the world at large and with fellow humans, rather than as correct or incorrect large-scale truths upon which we may rest our weary minds. For our purposes today, there is one specific term in particular which we're going to use, and yes, it's in the name. And the risk of doing so is that it may unlock a range of phobias towards togetherness in the process, because I'm going to guess that many of you have those. I've known enough of them myself to see just how common they are. But this term also opens horizons to an expanded vision of participation 
and it will be informed today by a few fascinating diners at the great feast that we will soon meet. Shall we enter the great feast? Words are the structural material of ideas and beliefs. Look for your beliefs without words and you will find nothing. Share your ideas without concepts and little will actually take place. In attempting to understand how ideas actually shape people as individuals and as members of groups, small and large, we find a word that is great value yet is often misunderstood, maligned, or undervalued. It comes in and out of fashion and the favor of intellectuals in various camps of human knowledge. And this may be due to its strong association with political thought, which is perhaps its most easily recognizable collocation. But its applications are many, and it is an essential word to contend with in any form of robust and eager practicing life. The word is ideology, and it is to this term that we will turn today in unpacking social togetherness. As there are various understandings of it in operation, I shall unpack it with reference to a number of key figures who used it to uncover profound insights into the nature of social participation. If you are one of those who indulge the fantasy the ideology has no place in your world, your personal practice, your family life, or even your enlightenment or awakening. Well, this could be the right turn for you to pay attention to. It shouldn't be too painful, but it will be enlightening. For us practitioners, we would do well to keep in mind how profoundly useful ideology can be, with a wealth of applications that go far beyond whatever prejudice you might currently hold towards it. It is a field of practice, just waiting to be mined and represents an edge that many practitioners have avoided, preferring to rest in complacency towards the social world in a focus on the individual or the universal. In fact, in the practicing life, our social embodiedness has often been looked down upon, ignored, or considered an afterthought in the pursuit of personal spiritual transformation, personal development, and personal awakening. We might even accept the 20th century spiritual practice increasingly becomes a private relationship of two, one between you as the center of your practice and its aims and goals in service to your personal needs and desires and the great universal other as God or the whole universe or the wondrous fantasy of total enlightenment or some variation on one of these themes. Ideology is an uncomfortable reminder to those who hold to such private practice that in the middle of those two poles lies the world, all the living things that inhabit it, and all the social structures and forms that a human life inevitably must contend with, from birth 
to death. The extremes of self and the great other are humbled by a return to this material plane on which we all exist and its complex demands. And this is why we must contend with ideology, for it is key for re-entering the world more wisely. Ideology has gathered up much meaning since its inception, and it is to some of those meanings that we must journey to unpack our interdependence with the social world of our fellow humans. For some of you, this may be an undesirable journey. A focus on the self in the 20th century lingers on today, and you may not be interested in how you are captured or intimate with wider society, you know, the sort you see on TV and social media, and may secretly despise. Yet the role of larger social groups in the formation of our own ideas and sense of being is inescapable. Even as we may attempt to assert a sense of ourselves outside of mainstream society, we inevitably find ourselves bound to new shared modes of being, linked together by shared ideas and shared beliefs, shared behaviors, and of course, shared practices that mirror fellow inhabitants and travelers on the way. We may move from one group of social attachments to another, but we may never escape them entirely. As we travel along the way in our exploration of this relationship with the social world and the term at hand, we find a depth of intrigue and entrapment that could be dramatic for those who have paid it no mind up to this point in their lives. That should ring like an opportunity for some of you, rather than as a reason to switch off. Now, as more meanings are associated with the term over time, and ways of using it expand, we find at the Great Feast a more sophisticated understanding developing of the relationship between the individual and the wider human world that we inhabit. And yes, it's a messy one. Ideology is also a rude wake-up call for that sacred individual self that imagines it can retreat into its shell and therein discover the secrets of the universe and dwell forevermore, far removed from the messiness of wider society outside. A deep dive into our own psychology, feelings, emotions, ideas and beliefs actually finds that the world out there is very much present in here. Even our deepest experiences of being are infiltrated by the social material world and the symbolic play of man. And as soon as we give verbal expression to even our most private feelings and experiences, we find ourselves caught by the world once again. Being is participation, after all. As one of the most underappreciated and ignored aspects of individual consciousness, ideology opens up a whole realm of practice that has often been marginalized by those using spiritual and religious practice as a means for escape or retreat. Finally, ideology as a concept continues to act something like a magnet, and spending so much time in the realm of political thought, it has attracted multiple usages, often driven by ambitious agendas. A generous way of viewing all this is as attempts to define a systematic approach to understanding the relationship between ideas, systems of thought, and individual and collective consciousness. 
As those wielding the term were often highly intelligent, the term could also be viewed as something of a trajectory of practice in mining the world of collectivism and the formation of individuals within collective forms and modes of being, socializing and acting together towards common aims, dreams and, what more often than not, turn out to be unrealizable fantasies of the dark and light variety. Now, who's the first guest at the Great Feast? Let us start with an Italian, Anzi, as they say over here, two Italiani. The one you just heard was Mussolini, a genuine, bona fide, authentic fascist. He and his party of fasci, back in the 1920s, were actually involved in persecuting our second Italian, the one we actually want to hear from. In order to convince even the most spiritually inclined folks of the utility of this word, ideology, we can start with an opening to it that goes beyond politics, and uh, which was actually provided by a writer, philosopher, and politician, and our first guest, Antonio Gramsci. He was imprisoned for over a decade by the Italian fascist state of the time, and wrote much of his most important work there. In his overall engagement with the events taking place, Marxism and the intellectual concerns of his age, he developed an understanding and usage of ideology as the systematic capture of populations by ideas, something that, with hindsight, was very much the theme of the day. He spoke of this in terms of class division and the hegemony, or hegemony if you prefer, of the wealthy and powerful, and their use of culture to maintain the dominant political system that they were part of, or closely related to. Now that's all politics of course, but his observation actually transcends the political sphere, and provides a concept that is essential for navigating ideology in a way that concerns each of you listening. And it is that of group capture. Now Gramsci spent a long time wondering how it is that people consent so willingly to that which is so bad for them, or dysfunctional, or evil for the collective. We all end up captured by shared ideas and must contend with them, sooner or later, and one step towards doing so involves becoming aware of just how captured we can all be by ideas and the sort of outcomes that can emerge from them. Yes, some of us understand just how many people got caught by Nazism and fascism, but we often fail to notice how it happens to us, or less evidently problematic groups. And the notion that you or I are somehow different and can avoid all this 
if we just focus on our practice, is actually part of a problem defined nicely as denialism, which is this terrible habit of denying reality in order to avoid a psychologically uncomfortable truth that we will not see or accept. Listen on to see whether you are afflicted with such a condition. Along with the notion of capture, Gramsci understood that ideologies have a habit of hiding their own contradictions as well, of suppressing anything that might undermine the hold on truth represented by that given group and its ideas. Some of this should start to sound familiar to many of you already, especially if you're engaged politically or spend much time on Twitter. Hmm. But before we jump ahead of ourselves, let's say a few more things that come out of Gramsci's thought. One is the recognition that it is fundamental for ideologies to survive and maintain their dominance within the spaces that they operate. They need to cultivate and maintain consensus or the thing won't survive. Ideological capture or identification is often unconscious, non-reflexive, and those that function best are always filled with obedient participants. Never question the Lama. Don't doubt the core belief in the Buddha binding us together, or the heroic fantasy that we are eventually going to create or participate in an enlightened society if we would all just practice hard enough and become fully realized. As systems for meaning-making, ideologies need to appear as whole, as complete, and as sufficient for members to make sense of their world and find a meaningful role in it. Just pause on that for a second. Don't we all fall for this kind of thing? Don't we believe that our knowledge sometimes is sufficient for us to make sense of the world? And that we find others who have similar ideas to us and we kind of group together and there we are. And if there's a meaningful role for us in it, then all the better. And there's a kind of facade going on there, and in fact, for ideologies to maintain this facade, contradictions that might undermine the authority of leaders or prominent members of a lineage or teachings and practices, well, those contradictions need to be undermined. Or, in today's parlance, key members, and we may be one of them without even realizing it, have to control the narrative. Clear examples where narrative control is easily visible, from outside at least, are cults. But as we mentioned in our episode on that topic, most Buddhist groups, because of capture, decision, enchantment, and all those other goodies we've spent time exploring, have some degree of cultish behaviour going on. In the more dysfunctional of these groups, from Rigpa to the NKT, also, from Maoist communism to the Italian fascists, we find that dissent is suppressed, managed, controlled, and doubt is considered, more often than not, an expression of insufficient faith or belief, or commitment, or even bad karma. Other viewpoints are considered as belonging to the inferior school, the enemy, incorrect interpretation, a lower Buddhist vehicle, hmm, and at its most extreme, can be imagined fully as the evil other. But yes, the more attentive listener is already noticing now 
because this becomes, I think, evident quite quickly, that all of this kind of dysfunction and all of this behaviour and all of these characteristics of ideologies describes our politically polarised times too. From Trump to Jeremy Corbyn, from far left to far right, contradiction, obedience, capture and denial are all humming along rather nicely. Of course, none of you listeners are caught up in any of that, right? Let's get fucking freedom back in and ringing proud. Fuck the patriarchy. The alt-right sucks. How dare you? How dare you? Disgusting! 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 You are the good, or perhaps you are one of those disinterested, aloof types that doesn't have to concern themselves with this kind of thing because you just don't engage with it and therefore the problem doesn't exist. Well, listen on, dear one. Listen on, good friend. You may find that your aloofness will only take you so far. And if you're one of those that argues away this kind of stuff by assuming that you are the good or that you are on the right side of history, I beg you, don't fall for that old chestnut. Keep going. There are practices that lie ahead that we should all be paying attention to. Back to Gramsci. So what did he do, the poor fellow? Because he didn't have an easy life. Well, he used his time wisely, and he did the best he could with the knowledge available to him at the time, and was evidently a diner at the Great Feast, both in body as he is in spirit now. He developed an understanding of ideology as a hegemonic force used by the powerful to maintain the existing order of society. In political terms, this observation is incredibly insightful and therefore powerful. It is, though, a problematic perspective too, and we should tread carefully. For our purposes, at least, the normalization process that takes place in social formations, that is to say, groups act to create, develop, and maintain consensus whilst hiding internal inconsistencies or contradictions, is the process that is pulsating through almost all groups, including those you are currently part of. It's all about degrees rather than total presence or absence. And Gramsci may have been writing about communism, fascism and capitalism, but his analysis is also relevant to a large-scale Buddhist organization or the Catholic Church. The sex scandals in Buddhist groups like Shambhala illustrate this dynamic well enough through their scrambling of leaders to maintain existing structures whilst controlling the public image and hopefully, at least for them, in their imagination, the narrative. Highlighting in the process how, well, contradictions exist between belief and action, internal vision of the group and external critique, as well as the paradox of sticking with a group even after it has been exposed as harmful, dishonest and deceptive in a way that is blindingly obvious to those outside. Of course, this whole process of deception and narrative control is proving increasingly difficult today in our looking-glass world, where we all get to see rather quickly the dirty laundry being hung out to dry. In fact, some of these collective narratives are in the process of being undermined by our global world and social media. But we're not quite there yet, and much of this knowledge remains ever-present and ever-important. 
Because ideological formation additionally means identity formation. And the deeper your commitment to any group, the deeper you identify with its vision of the world, its language, and its code and codes for interpreting that world. And therefore, as a result, well, it should be obvious, right? The greater difficulty you will have in critiquing it and leaving it when you clearly should. The true believers thus feel warranted in fighting to maintain a narrative in the face of scandal, because their world is intimately linked not only to the survival of the group, but the maintenance of the story about that group, which has been ingested, metabolized, and stored away into one's sense of self and meaning and place in the world. And yes, I know that sounds like a contradiction if we accept some of the Buddhist light theory, but the reality of self and no self and all of the rest of it, well, when it comes up against reality outside the group, is often shown to be wanting. Gaining perspective to critique one's own group effectively can be extremely difficult, and in many cases, impossible, especially when you are captured by its myths and cultural practices. Religion has such powerful stories after all, such incredible social practices, and usually such conviction that capture and identification can take decades to come to terms with, even after the collapse of a group and the exposure of a guru. Each time I hit you, I want all you to remember that you're closer to me. Closer to me. And harder I hit you, deeper the connection. Just remember, this is not only a critique, it's not only in part a criticism, but it's also a compassionate view on just how difficult it is at times to understand where our forms of social entrapment lie. And to those who have some sympathy and empathy towards those who are caught up in dysfunctional groups, it's also worth remembering that this dysfunction can exist in our own social commitments. In fact, it probably does to some degree. I'm going to push that line, feel free to push back. But listen on before you commit too fully. The hegemonic impulse can be further understood as an unconscious self-preservation instinct within social structures that the most captured members reproduce in their own psyche. A group survives by maintaining certain norms, after all, which are taken as given, just how things are, and by ignoring any dysfunction that might threaten to bring down the group or expose its inconsistencies and contradictions. So just as we ignore our own failings, dysfunction, and the underbelly of dark thought and emotion that may disrupt our appearance as decent, likable, capable, lovable beings, groups also function to hide their dark underbelly to maintain the world within their shared worldview and a vision of that group as fundamentally benign or dedicated to a higher purpose, which itself, of course, can lead to highly unethical behavior being justified and the concerns of less captured followers being explained away by deferral to authority, whether a lineage, an enlightened teacher, a text, or the personal experience of those inside who are fully convinced that their organization is utterly benign, even while suffering individuals have their lives torn apart 
or destroyed, or they simply have to leave. Um, my name was Kaosang Denny when I was uh, ordained in the NKT. My first experience of meditation was in the NKT. So it started out when it was a very sort of magical trip for me from the beginning. So you think, oh, you know, I'll, I'll go and I'll learn about meditation and you look around and they've got centres everywhere. Um, so I ended up moving into a centre because, like I said, I was completely passionate and devoted to the teachings. And um, initially I wasn't bothered about Kalsangyatso or gurus or anything like that. I, but as you stay in a centre, you know, people start saying, oh, he's your guru... And then you like have a look around and you think, well, there's no other teacher here that I can rely on who seems to know what he's on about. So then you gradually absorb the guy and think, OK, I'll make him my guru. And then um, I was ordained in the, we think, 98, probably late 90s. When I got involved, there was no internet, so I couldn't check them out. I couldn't find out about the controversies behind everything. When I got involved, um, one of the main guys had been sleeping with nuns and doing really ridiculous things and power games and he'd just been um, asked to leave but no one told me that and I didn't know anything about any of this um, CD sort of backdrop to the whole thing. I can't really describe to you just how uh, bad it is for your your mind to be involved and meditate, get calm, trust, um, take all your whole heart and place it in this place where people actually don't care about you, where there's no duty of care towards you. Um, there's just hundreds of people who've just been thrown out and left. So I'm really here just to say to people, just be careful. Um, and, I've, and I'm now compelled, even though I would love to walk away from them, I'm utterly compelled to uh, warn people about them. I don't feel like I've got a choice. The Rick Basanga is in crisis. As long-time committed and devoted students, we feel compelled to share our deep concern regarding your violent and abusive behavior. Your actions have hurt us individually, harmed our fellow sisters and brothers within Rigpa the organization, and by extension Buddhism in the West. We write to you following the advice of the Dalai Lama, in which he has said that students of Tibetan Buddhist lamas are obliged to communicate their concerns about their teacher. Your public face is one of wisdom, kindness, humor, warmth and compassion, but your private behavior, the way you conduct yourself behind the scenes, is deeply disturbing and unsettling. Those of us who write to you today have first-hand experience of your abusive behaviors, as well as the massive efforts not to allow others to know about them. Our concerns are deepened with the organizational culture you have created around you that maintains absolute secrecy of your actions. Our primary concerns are, 1. Your physical, emotional and psychological abuse of students. 2. Your Zool abuse of students. 3. Your lavish, gluttonous, and subreddic lifestyle. 4. Your actions have tainted our appreciation for the practice of the Dharma. 1. Physical, emotional, and psychological abuse we have received directly from you, and witnessed others receiving many different forms of physical abuse. You have punched and kicked us, pulled hair, torn ears, as well as hit us and others with various objects such as your back scratcher, wooden hangers, phones, cups and any other objects that happen to be close at hand. We trusted for many years that this physical and emotional treatment of students, what you assert to be your skillful means of wrathful compassion in the tradition of crazy wisdom was done, with our best interest at heart in order to free us from our habitual patterns. Now just ask Sogya Rinpoche's ex-followers for the bullshit excuses they heard from him and followers alike. Shameful, yes, but also deeply delusional. 
they are caught. Their behavior, it is wrong and we should criticize it and call it out and in some cases call the police, right? But we can also recognize that this is often the product of those incapable of seeing the truth, of a reality that no longer confirms their ideological beliefs. Gramsci told us that to tell the truth is revolutionary. How true that is. The final takeaway from Gramsci that remains as relevant as ever today is likely his most famous concept, and it's that of cultural hegemony. This concept points to the deliberate use of culture, and not just power, to maintain a dominant ideology of a specific time and a given space. Now, although this concept can be used to critique the cultural forms developed and maintained to support that ideology, and we can say this about dictatorships and highly dysfunctional, semi or even supposedly functioning democracies, it can also be used to understand the norms of religious organizations and their own culture, both in terms of cultural materials, from music to dance to practices, but it also stretches beyond that to meditation groups, schools, a social media company, a hippie commune, a sports club, and it could be argued even a family. In fact, cultural hegemony refers to a world of many, many things beyond culture's most explicit expressions, whether art, a TV series on Netflix, architecture, fashion, and the institutions that produce and validate their content. It also includes the perceptions, values, beliefs, and general understanding developed by and through those cultural products and the institutions that produce and sustain them. Now this goes very deep indeed if you start to think about it and apply it to the spaces that you have spent most time with in your life or spend most time in now. This concept actually refers to the fabric of shared meaning that allows you and I to participate in the culture of the world around us and with each other on a day-to-day -day basis. This is fascinating stuff. It both initiates and channels the norms of social interaction that you and I take for granted and as given. The dominant normality of a society is a sign of cultural dominance and the hegemony of ideology. Now, apply that to Buddhism and any group you've been part of, any group that you can loosely define as spiritual. What were the norms that governed the behavior of those groups? Most of you will have noticed it when you entered. Things felt different. People did things differently. There was a vibe, an atmosphere. You fit into it or you don't. And if you do fit into it, or if you're attracted to fitting into it, then change takes place. What are the values there? Beliefs and practices. What's visible and invisible? All of this stuff becomes interesting here because religion and spiritual groups tend to believe that they are above all this or exist outside of this, when in truth they are as deep in it as any other social formation, if not deeper. Explaining this stuff away is, thus, part of their strategy for reinforcing their ideological and cultural hegemony.
Can you feel it? Is that enough of a religious revelation for you? So understand that cultural hegemony creates the sense of what is normal, inevitable, and natural. And wherever you see those things in yourself and the groups you participate in, know that ideology is at play. When absorbed, these become the internal values that we align with and start to produce ourselves. If we are captured by a super-duper cultural force, which is very much of the moment, then we all too often do so unaware and uncritically, and we may even end up as a mouthpiece for them. Convinced that we are acting in the groups, or on the larger scale, world's best interest, as purveyors of the next great truth that really should be grasped by one and all. Whoops. Now I can tell you I've been there. I'm happy to admit it. How many of you listening thought that or, or think that if everybody would just meditate, the world would be a better place? If we could all just be a little bit more loving, practice yoga, recycle, join this political group or that group, learn about this skill or that skill, just understand this one thing, wouldn't the world be saved? Right? Isn't that the dream? Or is that too much for some of you to admit? Well, I went first. If you're ready, feel free to do the same. This kind of behavior can actually be sniffed out in the naive, emotionally charged thought that everyone should be practicing anything. Mindfulness is the technique today, of course, but the lingering thought in many, many minds that yoga should be done by everyone is there, isn't it? I mean, who sells that kind of fantasy as well? Well, let's name a couple. Bikram Chowdhury, right? How many people fell under his spell and decided that if just everybody would do that type of yoga, or if everybody knew what this guy knew and was experiencing what I'm experiencing, then the world would be a better place. And oh my God, didn't that ship burn and sink? And what about the creator of uh, TM, Transcendental Meditation? How many people believe that that would save us all with their funny ideas and fake scientific research showing that if enough people thought positive thoughts, they would somehow transform the world? Or how about over-enthusiastic proponents of psychedelics these days? Yeah, you know who you are. Now, if everybody were to take magic mushrooms, wouldn't they suddenly wake up? Start loving the world? Never mind those poor folks who will have a psychological crisis or breakdown on the way. Ah, but they're just a minority, aren't they? Sorry, didn't mean to spoil your dream. Or how about tantric sex? That was pretty popular for a while. I remember some people doing that and telling me that that would magically transform the world. Or even naturism, far more harmless, but filled with naive utopian thinkers all the same. Or how about, hmm, activism? But whose activism, you say? No, you don't ask that, do you? Because yours is the right type, of course. Oh, sorry. Will that rub some of you up the wrong way? Yeah. Ideological capture, folks. It's everywhere. Now, before I piss off too many people, the first question that ought to emerge from those actually interested in the impact of all this beyond armchair philosophizing is what is to be done with this knowledge? other than deconstruct the ideological apparatus at play, or merely critique from afar. In fact, one of the fascinating lingering questions for societies, groups and individuals more broadly, 
is the necessity and inevitability of ideology. We should actually understand ideologies as essential facets of shared human development, and adult social literacy should include an understanding of their ubiquity. Just because ideology as a recognizable concept has been largely absent from the history of human practice, it doesn't mean that by merely revealing the internal structures of a given ideology, they can be somehow got rid of, or even should be got rid of, or are so easily changed or replaced. That last bit should be contemplated deeply by those most committed to changing the world. Not because I want to deny their capacity to change the world or to suppress their enthusiasm for attempting to do so. It's just that, at some point, if you don't realize you are repeating history, you will be merely trying to transplant one dysfunctional ideology with another. Remember that the history of politics and religion is one of struggle and conflict. And the self-preservation instinct often means that the appearance of change and even transparency are further tools in the group's attempt to maintain cultural hegemony and survive. Bikram, for example, is doing nicely down in Mexico, and many of his followers continue to follow him and nip down there for another training course. David Lynch and others continue to promote TM. Tom Cruise is still a happy Scientologist. The most adaptive ideologists co-opt their critics and incorporate. Glenn Wallace told us about this early on in his exploration of the speculative non-Buddhism project. Tom Pepper did the same. We heard about it also in the discussion of neoliberal Buddhism and mindfulness. These are in fact great examples of Buddhism as ideology in action. Before we get to our next guest at the table, who's going to be along very soon, one big question beyond gurus and the fantasy of world transformation through yoga, meditation, kala chakra, or enlightened action that remains, or rather, that we are returned to in discovering the central role of ideology in social formation, is that of governance and the formation and maintenance of societies. This is a crux point where liberal and conservative thought still needs to meet. But not just them, we do too. Ideology actually places additional demands on those who wish to lead wisely or compassionately, to choose what kinds of molding and shaping will take place by the dominant ideas they would put forward in a given society. And, pay attention now, to what degree those ideas can be controlled, determined, and committed to the desired effects and outcome, especially in an unstable, changing global world. It's easy to dream of revolution, spiritual or political, when you believe you possess the truth, and not just one of many imperfect attempts to make sense of a vast, complex, changing world. If ideology is inescapable, we must also find a way to make peace with it in ourselves too. It is deeply personal after all. And we must understand our own dependence on ideologies and role in sustaining and shaping them. This is a non-negotiable facet of the practicing life. And I'm really sorry to have to tell some of you this. 
because I know you don't believe it, or you've been ignoring this truth for a very long time indeed. Gramsci stated back in his time, a tumultuous time of great change, something that may be true today. The old world is dying and the new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. So here's the story, folks. Quiet, quiet, quiet. Wait. I know who you are. Just wait. They don't know if it's true or false. See, I know when I should get good and when I should get bad. Well, whether it is or isn't, our next guest has just arrived. Here he is. Let us now head further back in time to France to see where this term originated and what its creator was attempting to do with it. The term ideology was coined around 1800 in the period of the European Enlightenment by the Frenchman Antoine de Stutte-Tracy. That's quite the name, isn't it? I think he's got a few other names to stuff in there as well, but let's just go with Tracy for now. He was around during the French Revolution, and it was in that period that he came up with the term as an attempt to create a new science of ideas. If we think of Tracy, again, as a product of his time, then his desire to create a word and concept that would help us to understand the way ideas are created and how they relate to each other when separated from the eternal revealed word of God was rather radical indeed. Tracy was in fact one of those elite thinkers of the time attempting to conceive of the world apart from theology and the lingering dominance of the church's hold on knowledge. Tracy was also a proponent of what is now the near-forgotten school of sensualistic philosophy. Ooh, that sounds kinky. Well, it was actually about exploring how sensations are stimulated by people's engagement with the physical world around them, and then how those sensations give rise to and maintain ideas. If we entertain this uh, association, we get a useful key for thinking about the way ideology functions. They not only infiltrate our thoughts, ideas, and identifiable beliefs, but inhabit the feelings, emotions, and states we find ourselves in, especially those deemed appropriate, acceptable, and even necessary in any given group. Now that's something worth thinking about. We often think about cultivating specific propositive emotions in specific meditation and Buddhist practices. We also categorize others as unacceptable. And it's interesting how that is itself a very interesting social practice to explore. A lot of assumptions reign in that valorization of one emotion or another over another. And if you think about it, submission to God in one way or another is not just a theoretical proposition, right? Devotion to the Dalai Lama is not a purely rational proposition either. Even the desire to achieve enlightenment, well, it's a desire first and foremost, but who says that's rational? Each of these is wrapped up in feelings, and often emotions. Each entails states of consciousness, 
that are themselves bound up with values and beliefs, and even historical weight. And they are experienced most powerfully when embodied and run through with feeling. The fact is that ideologies must provide felt experience and emotional meaning to justify their existence and to sustain the commitment of those who believe in them. The interweaving of ideas, identities and felt belonging combining to hold members together in shared meaning-making. And that's a fascinating lens through which to view groups, whether a group of football supporters or the hooligans or Italian ultras. I mean, that's just uh, as clear a picture as you can find on all of this stuff. But then, as I mentioned before, we often fail to view our own group participation in a similar way. We just go on in, don't we? Because it meets certain needs we have. Again, none of this identifies these as fundamentally good or bad. The implication here is that our ideas simply have a direct relationship to sensations, feelings, and the emotions we experience. And even for those of you who find all of this obvious, the question worth exploring is how far have you unpacked all of this in your own life? Because when it comes to the irrational or the unspoken, we often, well, have very, very strong limits. And if we take all this further, not only does our emotional interior depend entirely on our physical existence, then obviously there can be no independent existence for our ideas and therefore thoughts from the material world around us. They are therefore natural phenomena, part of that which binds us or connects us to the world of form through or within our physical bodies. In fact, thoughts were understood by Tracy to arise from our physiology and not some ghost in the machine in the form of a soul. And considering how common it is for folks to believe today that the mind is somehow separate from the natural world and as a consequence the physical body, this is no small claim and especially for that time, but I would argue for today too, because most of us are really struggling still with some form or residue of dualism. I mean, even if you accept rationally this kind of belief, again, how far have you explored the implications of it? How far do you experience it subjectively as so? In the different arenas and spheres of your life, not just on a meditation cushion or on a magic mushroom trip. It's one thing you see to agree to a collective assumption cultivated in secular society or in a specific meditational practice group, and then you take it as a given. But if that assumption rests on thousands of years of a belief in a soul, I'm going to suggest that we still have some way to go in making peace with our material existence and the presence of our mind very much in a physical world. Another desire held by Tracy and others of his age was to uncover documentable origins for thought in order to reliably, and with evidence and proof, place the inner mental world of the mind into the natural world. Whatever you might currently believe about mind, or soul, or God, etc., the basic fact that our mind is interdependent with our bodies is undeniable. Once you accept that, the real work begins. 
interesting arenas of thought can be explored, some apparently archaic, but making something of a return in philosophy, panpsychism being the one that's most obvious, but also through the work of figures like Maurice Merleau-Ponty, the French phenomenologist. He had some very interesting thoughts. And of course, we have people today working on embodied consciousness and as an attempt to get beyond dualism. Evan Thompson's doing some interesting work on this, uh, while he's not, I guess, plugging his new book on why he's not a Buddhist. And of course, we interviewed him recently. But environmental situatedness is one unexplored area at present, which I'm going to get onto myself at some point, hopefully with a guest. Now, a couple more points about Tracy. His concept of ideology was also related to liberty and the individual. Well, of course, it was the Enlightenment after all. And his science of ideas was clearly rooted in the rationalism of the time. Later thinkers would develop the notion of ideology away from Tracy's into a system of capture that did anything but ensure individual freedom. As we saw with Gramsci, ideology could be used to signal our capture in hegemonic systems. And if you think about that a lot, it can conjure up a suffocating image of man in the world, imprisoned by ideas and the political systems and norms that emerge from them. Tracy's original idea, though, was that an understanding of ideology would free man, cultivate a rational approach to the world, and liberate the individual from political and religious oppression. What a beautiful desire, hmm? Recognizing that ideologies actually can function in that way may make them appear less oppressive to some of you, and more attractive as a field of practice. But be careful, if you try and just have that in the pot, so to speak, you're going to miss out on all the other goodies. The fact is, things can be many things. In many regards, developments in our understanding of ideology, which are still going on of course, have been an underappreciated revolution in our general understanding of selfhood and of being in the world. Although the term has, throughout its history, often been only seen in a strongly negative or positive light, today we might start to accept it as a conceptual means for understanding man and woman as social beings existing within complexes of social relationships, both visible and invisible, and that the process is ultimately unavoidable. Ideology is a matter of fact an integral part of existence, and like all necessary conditions, capable of being benevolent or malevolent, ignored or harnessed, and potentially harnessed as an essential practice item at the individual and collective level. As a quick aside, a second neologism that emerges from the mind of Tracy was ideophobia. This is a wonderfully underused term today that could be brought back into popular usage, especially in this age of persistent anti-intellectualism and the closed-mindedness and narrow-mindedness that tends to accompany polarization and the increasing extremes at both ends of the political spectrum. It's a great term and it indicates a rather fun set of... Uh, well, intellectual disabilities, ineptitude, there's one, a vacuity of ideas, and for a pragmatist, a lack of practical ability, and finally, 
Well, of course, you guessed it, the politicization of thought. Hmm, sounds rather familiar, doesn't it? I'm sure that you listeners can think of ideophobes out there, including many of our current politicians, journalists, and most active Twitter users. Now, these folks usually get a kicking at the Great Feast, so make sure you're not one of them. You will be ejected by bouncers pretty quickly if you are. So here comes our next guest. It's another Frenchman. Hello there. Bonjour. That's all I can manage, I'm afraid. And the French have been busy in thinking about the sorts of themes that emerge in this podcast. There are many other guests who could come along and offer something very important, but uh, the figures who are joining us today have identified some of the key issues underlying ideology as a whole and our resistance to it. Therefore, they are in great service to the Great Feast. One of the thinkers that we really need to listen to to certainly give voice to the more negative potential of ideology. And we're going to explore some of that with him now. But that negative potential is also really a means for understanding how this whole process of social formation goes on and the relationship between the individual, wider society, but also the groups that he or she spends meaningful time in. The figure who's just sat down is uh, Louis Althusser. He's another Frenchman and philosopher. He actually made ideology appear very personal indeed at times, and often uncomfortably so, especially during the 1960s and 70s when he was very active. He was in the business uh, more generally of taking existing ideas within philosophy but also other fields and developing them further. And he did this with ideology, developing insight for all of us into the intimate relationship between individual psychology and the dominant ideology, and the appearance and experience of ideological norms as perfectly natural as the way it simply is. In developing this idea, he came to understand how the naturalness or the appearance of naturalness or the way things simply are tended to lead to the creation of more obedient or faithful subjects who would just carry out the expected norms of the state or the group. In a sense, he asks us to be suspicious of that which appears most natural. In looking at Althusser, we also go farther in leaving behind the worldview in which human beings are born with an original essence or soul to the one in which we are material beings shaped by the social norms and structures of a given place and time. If taken seriously then, Althusser goes on to conclude that even our inner self and our deepest subjectivity is formed by the context and circumstances of our age, with desires and thoughts as the mere product of the ideological structures themselves playing out whether we choose that to be the case or, or not. As a consideration within the field of personal practice, it's very interesting to contemplate that and to see how that impacts our own sense of being. 
Do we become more rigid in the face of the challenges presented by this kind of view? Do we accept them as given, as natural, too, and therefore perform our own ideological move? Do we recontextualize them so that they fit an existing belief or idea that we have? Actually exposing yourself in terms of emotional vulnerability to these kinds of ideas can often be quite destabilizing, can often lead to, well, a whole range of uncomfortable emotional expressions. So this is a practice that may not be wise for everybody in any given moment, but it also may be a practice that's actually demanded for those who have become complacent and too comfortable within their own ideological interpretations taken from Buddhism or Neo-Advaita or some other practice, which affirms their current subjective sense of being, however that may be formulated. This is one of the ideas why exploring these themes is fundamental in personal practice, because the personal, according to Althusser, is less personal than we should allow ourselves to believe. In fact, within the personal, we find different forms of collective idea, collective thought, and collective being, and feeling, and sensing, and emoting. And that's, well, very interesting ground to go in and dig into, cultivate, roll around in. I mean, the metaphors go on and on, and I'm not being silly here, I mean it. What are the metaphors you use for engaging with practices and ideas, or states, or different ways of perceiving? Well, you can shake them up with a wider range of metaphors. And what tends to happen, and this is a topic we're moving towards, is we tend to resist some of our others. And often, especially for long-term practitioners, that resistance should instead be an invitation to engage further. Now, although Gramsci pointed to all of this stuff we're, we're talking about here in his critique of cultural hegemony, he actually takes it deeper because he also considers our most basic and our most instinctive reactions as the product of ideological formation too. His analogies for getting at this concern the typical unreflexive reactions we exhibit towards authority figures like the police, but we can also witness it in the familiar reactions we have to colleagues and bosses officials and supermarket cashiers, ticket inspectors, but even a theme song to a popular TV show. Each of these tends to trigger instinctual reactions. His analogies were filled with concern for state power and the role of state institutions, from school to university, a doctor's office to a hospital, and so on, employed in supporting the induction of citizens into the norms of a society so that they become willing participants in the maintenance of the dominant ideology. In a century of struggle which he lived in, I mean, this view could be used to explain how so many citizens would willingly support authoritarian regimes, theocracies or dictatorships, with seemingly little concern for the suffering or injustices they caused. But again, as I keep trying to do, we have to bring this closer to home. These processes are going on around us too, within us and through us. Althusser's views as the basis for more heuristic thinking can be put to use in challenging a number of core spiritual ideals too, or if we're harsher in defining those, escapist fantasies. 
Althusser has in the past solicited a sense of paranoia in his articulation of ideology, but perhaps we should think of it as a useful counterbalance to some of the more lovey ideas of togetherness. We are interdependent does not only mean we can generate and radiate love and compassion towards each other in a never-ending crescendo of unification towards, well, what? It also means we are forever bound to each other through rich, complex social ties, some of which are quite horrible. Althusser went one way in drawing conclusions from his insights that sound like something most of us would not wish for. He argued for a dictatorship of the proletariat. And I'm certainly not on board with that. Just think of those wonderful Twitter mobs again if you want a taste of how those things can go. But there is certainly a certain weight that comes from recognising the human hand's role in shaping the deep layers of subjectivity that we all absorb and often unwittingly cultivate as we grow in a given society or microcosm of it, such as a Dharma hall. One fundamental outcome of these insights that he brings to us concerns the role of this process and the limits it places on the imagination. A dominant ideology both restricts and provides the scope and limits of what can be imagined. Certainly that's the case while we're identified with it. So if we return to Buddhism and the practicing life, the question that we should give to it is, well, what limits and horizon do my beliefs and practices establish within their compliance to a given Buddhist ideology or other that you bring to Buddhism? Buddhism in its many guises and forms both establishes stories about the world and ourselves in it. And it convinces itself and its followers that those horizons are the world and that story and horizon are one and the same. As do all religions, of course, as do all alternative religions. But of course, if all ideologies function in the same way, confusing narration with reality, then all of us should be left perplexed by stories of liberation that are incapable of recognizing their own unavoidable practice of hermeneutics and their own containment within horizons. We should also come to understand that there is a process of inculcation or adaption and adoption involved in any kind of commitment to any kind of practice. Freedom comes with a price. Freedom comes with hidden clauses and commitments. And in being so abstract for so long, concepts such as enlightenment, awakening, and freedom too, have managed to hover around Buddhism, Hinduism, spirituality, and whatnot, more often than not as empty abstract signifiers for desires aplenty. From Lobsang Rampa to Osho, from Adida to Adyashanti, we see a history of very human desire created within historical lines of development, social formation, and reaction. But perhaps now we also have an expanding community of non-gurus 
claiming one or the other of these goodies. To the point that we can start to unpack the role of ideology in the construction of their enlightenments, awakenings and freedoms too. And the story is told or whispered so that we may learn a thing or two about the art of awakening and its very close cousin, the art of bullshit. Such wonderful social service aside, yes, I'm doing my bit here. Feel free to judge. I don't mind. But let's do what many of you keep asking for, which is bring this topic a little further back to the person practicing at home or with friends. A number of listeners who've responded to my request for input have asked for the podcast to touch on practice more explicitly, and by this they do usually mean contemplative practice, or, for most of them, meditation in short. Now, I actually find this quite curious, in that thinking, learning, studying, reading, listening, and discussing are clearly practices, and almost all of the Buddhist traditions have histories of these things going on usually more often than meditation. And they are all practices that liberate, that can reduce ignorance, and that should accompany any kind of meditative technique, bodywork, and so on. These conversations from this perspective are a form of practice, and I also believe it would be unethical to speak about specific meditation techniques for working with through this microphone. I'm a great believer that practices should be explored on a one-to-one -one basis once some has at least some basic capacity. I have seen too many folks waste decades doggedly pursuing a technique without any input from another human being or following poor instruction wrapped in romantic bullshit and empty promises. Practicing life requires company, community, even if that is only an occasional community of two. Progress, which takes many, many forms, is serviced by other humans. And if we're lucky, a variety of them, with different life experiences and perspectives, not just a group of them all affirming each other's ideas and experiences and sense of self. Now, I can speak of principles, of course, and much of that is what's going on here if you're paying attention. And I can even add in a few suggestions, which I normally do through the form of questions. But without speaking to a specific human or a group of humans with very specific concerns and specific life experience, I cannot offer up meditative practice tips without incarnating this year's new best-selling self-help promise and ultimate failure. I mean, who remembers the self-help promise from last year or the year before? I certainly don't. And just how many of those self-help books, Buddhist or otherwise, remain unread? But well, in many cases, it's best that they do. Guten Morgen. That's how you say good morning in German, apparently. Another language I don't speak. But considering the theme of the podcast episode this time has been rather European, from France to Italy, and of course to England, I thought why not chuck in a bit of German, especially because Austria is just down the road from where I live. 
We could also have Dobrodan if you like as well, which is how they say good morning in Slovenian and Croatian. So there you go. This is my Sam Harris interruption, or as he once used to call it, housekeeping, which I quite like really, housekeeping. I don't think I've ever engaged in housekeeping. It sounds like the kind of thing upper middle class people used to do in the Victorian age. But anyway, that's besides the point, isn't it? This interruption serves to remind you of two things, and I'll keep it brief. Number one, this podcast now has a donation option on its website, imperfectbuddha.com, and I'm not going to manipulate you like Sam might. I'm just going to say a couple of straightforward things. Think about it. How much do you listen to this podcast? Really, how much have you got out of it? If the answer is very little, then skip ahead. But if you're a regular listener who benefits from these kinds of interviews I hold and these kind of creative turns that I've been experimenting with, then you might want to give something back. And here's my thoughts on it. If you don't give something back to me, give something back to someone else. Perhaps to your favourite podcast. The other one, of course. Huh? Anyway, I think it's right that you do so. I do so myself. And it needs to happen really in this day and age. I know how much time and energy I put into all this. So, some of my favourite podcasts, well, they're doing exactly the same thing. And apart from those on the BBC or that belong to other professional organisations, the lesser ones, like this one, are usually put together by hard-working, inspired individuals trying to share quality content. So, give something back today, folks. Give something back. Secondly, well, as you should know by now, this podcast is sponsored by O'Connell Coaching. That's my coaching business. And if you don't know the spiel, that's another nice foreign word, I'll quickly give it to you in one minute max. I offer coaching, support, mentoring and guidance to those taking, well, a different kind of approach to spirituality and Buddhism, waking up, coming to know your mind, dealing with your emotions, etc, etc. Any of the themes we've tackled on the podcast can be faced in a one-to-one coaching dynamic. Many people find it useful. I've been refining and tailoring my approach over the last few years. I'm finding it more rewarding too, and it seems that other folks are too. Three options, coaching, Buddhist-style practice and engagement, although be aware I'm not a Buddhist or meditation teacher, and the shamanic stuff that, well, a lot of people seem to be rather curious about, to the point that I might actually have a podcast episode on that topic soon, but shan't give away my secrets right now. The kind of information for O'Connell Coaching is now being placed all together at the same website, imperfectbuddha.com. Get in touch if you feel the need. So part of coming to terms with the ideological nature of Buddhism and spirituality more generally is that we must come to identify the horizons established by the traditional group we were or have been inculcated into and at the same time resist the fantasy of total escape, total purity or the silly notion that we can be utterly free of ideological practice entirely. If you still hold on to that idea, this is not the right place for you unless you're willing to change your mind somewhat. You don't have to change your mind entirely right now. Don't adopt any of this as a belief, but you could place, at the Great Feast, your ideas in relationship with some of these and see what happens. They will be changed, that is for sure. 
if you take the process seriously. But one simple principle that is as open as can be is similar to this. In terms of what can be done with this kind of material, really, well, is to explore different kinds of horizons and recognise how the current horizons you live within maintain a certain form of familiarity or comfort, even if they're painful. New horizons should not be taken as replacements and not feed into the same old desire of an end or complete freedom or some kind of total escape. But rather they become experiential possibilities where knowledge can be gained and first-hand experience had. Entrapment is the human condition, I'm afraid, and many people have been talking about that for some time, but it's one of those aspects of Buddhist thought, for example, that often gets discarded or ignored or minimalized in, you know, the desire for us to find all the other good stuff that somehow mirrors our old Christian Judeo tradition. We are, though, embodied on a material plane called planet Earth, and some of you would probably do well to keep reminding yourselves of that. For the resistant ones out there, though, just ask yourself, how different is any form of imagined total escape any different from the Christian notion of heaven, happy ever after? your entrance through the pearly gates. Really, how are they different? Give that some thought. That's an interesting line of inquiry to head down. Learning, reading, discussing, and perceiving divergently are all means for discovering different forms of horizons or containment, more or less the same thing, right? And for identifying ourselves within spaces and not just some unending horizon of total freedom, which doesn't exist. I know, I know, some of you will hate me for saying that. You may call bullshit and react by either throwing a temper tantrum, yes, but my magic mushroom trip unified my consciousness with the universe. Yes, of course it did. Of course it did. Apologies. Carry on. Or you may waft off into some kind of aloofness, one of our least appreciated forms of escapism. You know, that man is so ignorant. He hasn't practiced enough clearly or grasped the profound heights of wisdom and purified perception of myself or my teachers or that guy I read about in a book. Well, perhaps that's certainly possibly true and I'll give you that. But you could be utterly wrong too, right? And I would suggest that each of those is a performative act and that you should enjoy them while you can. I know they can be very pleasurable. I've been there myself. You should think yourself lucky if someone comes along and helps you get out of that kind of self-delusion. Staying in the theme of practice, a past guest of ours, Ken McLeod, has produced a wealth of practice material for those interested, much of it in evolution still. He's writing a book on Tantra at present that may prove rather interesting, or be another attempt to salvage the unsalvageable. But uh, whatever you make of Ken... He has come up against the limits of Buddhism, spirituality, and many of the dysfunctional tendencies in Western spirituality more broadly, and he's doing his bit to work on them. He acknowledges the Pavlovian impulse of all of this in his take on Buddhist practice when distinguishing between reactivity and response. The first being an automatism, an unreflexive pattern or habit that we are conditioned to act out the latter being the process of developing awareness, developing perspective, consideration, and choice, just to name a few of the practices many of you already employ. 
Each of these can be brought into relationship with something like ideology, and some will go one way and some another. One tempting direction that some of the more pessimistic practitioners out there take is that it's all ideology, and there is absolutely no free will, and we are mere products of history, language, and society. Well, I obviously find that a rather unhelpful view on our predicament, and I don't think it's productive of the kind of thing that many of us are trying to produce, which is a reduction of suffering and, for the more awake of you, a reduction of ignorance. Learned helplessness is a performative act itself, and that kind of interpretation, of course, is ideological too. And if we're not playing the game of trying to find the great truth or the one great interpretation of the reality, then really we have, as I said at the beginning, quite a bit of room to move. Now, much of suffering is patterned and predictable. Much of our ignorance is patterned and therefore familiar. And with a bit of help from our friends, we can learn to identify where our salivation reflexes run on automatic. Of course, there are entire fields of human practice dedicating to helping us along in that process, from psychoanalysis to psychotherapy, from critical thinking skills to the training of awareness and attention. In fact, reaction and response can be usefully seen as parameters within which a practicing life unfolds and unfolds. There are others, of course, many good ones, and there are limits to every single model. But this is a pretty good pairing if we acknowledge the challenges surrounding the notion of free will and don't fall back into that trap of absolute autonomy or total objective perspective. This is actually the right moment to mention resistance, which is one of my favourite topics in the practising life. And no, I'm not talking about the political sort of resistance with guns and bandanas, but the sort that tends to emerge in people and groups when cherished beliefs are challenged and when the certainty of identities is undermined. Reactivity, in fact, becomes strongest when those two processes are undertaken. Again, look around you for perfect examples of this, with our polarised political times being really, really useful mirrors to this kind of global dysfunction. I'm also going to go further and suggest that the discourse we're having right now in our conversation at this table at the Great Feast really is a practice in which we could understand response and reaction. In fact, being aware of your own feelings and thoughts, reaction and response as we go through these topics is a practice today. If you feel like giving up, if you're really enjoying it, if you're really for the ideas or really against them, those are all forms of reaction and response too, of course. And in fact, I'd go as far as to suggest that if this material doesn't produce any real reaction in you, then you're probably not a very honest practitioner. So let me be condescending for a moment. Take a nice deep breath and relax. As the exploration of ideology becomes more personal and rubs too close to the skin, it really is very common for people to start feeling rather uncomfortable. In fact, discomfort of this sort is often played down in practice. In many practice traditions, seen as something you should be neutral towards, uh, objectify, uh, observe, or ignore, and allow to pass. And there is certainly a space in which that kind of practice is, is useful if you're specifically training in technique. But if you're suppressing it through that kind of manoeuvre, 
then I think you're going to end up having problems and you're actually just reinforcing the kind of ideological capture you are caught up in. There does appear, right, to be something almost sinister in the role of external ideas to condition and determine our most natural reactions. Really, Matthew? Our most natural reactions may be the product of someone or something else? Ooh, yeah. I mean, that's not nice. That's not nice. And I mean, Generation Xers, some of you, you know, you're probably quite cynical, right? And you're just like, yeah, I know, who cares? And I think that kind of dismissiveness is also a form of reactivity too, right? I mean, that's an expression of an ideological position. But if some of you are already pretty awake to this kind of thinking, and you think you've got some of it down, it might be worth remembering that your little brain can only grasp a little amount or a limited amount of the ways in which you are currently captured and formed. And you and I, like all of us, will inevitably think about and speak to only that which you or I or we have become aware of so far. If we accept that we're always ignorant, our perceptions are always limited, then there's always more to be seen and discovered. Be wary of complacency, folks. It's one of the great unspoken enemies of the practicing life. There are inevitably more layers of social capture and conditioning and formation hidden at the margins of what you can currently see. Folding all of that into emptiness may work as a reprieve from the torment of togetherness for some escapees, but it is, in my view, merely a temporary break from our all-too-human condition. The good news, though, is that the human condition is where all the fun is to be found. This kind of perspective that I'm sharing on conditioning and the role of ideology in shaping us can clearly feel deeply counterintuitive to many, especially if they still hold some remnant of the idea that they are unique, have an essence, or hold to the idea that some non-dual state or practice will automatically rid them of all this messy human shit, or said in other words, wonder. The modern history of spirituality is littered with failure and failures in this regard. And what may be very well-intentioned folks selling dreams, who are, whether they want to be or not, almost always snake oil salesmen, carrying on age-old traditions of promises that unfortunately too easily get sold to fools. And yes, I have been a fool. An idea from neo-shamanism might be interesting to ponder here. Just for a moment, it concerns the retrieval of parts of ourselves and power. For the light, as it should be obvious by now, is just as good at covering over that which we will not see as the darkness. And there is power held in what is suppressed, hidden or ignored. Recognizing what is hidden by our practices or beliefs increases our power to act in the world too. It's a dangerous game to confront our all-too-human world and its role 
and roles in our deepest corners of subjectivity, but if not entered into, what we have instead is a story of neglect, spiritual bypassing, and, importantly, the refusal to take ownership for one's part in the collective patterns of ignorance and suffering. All of this points out as well, and points to the level of superficiality, narcissism, vacuousness, and fakery of so much practice and spirituality. And, as a final note before we get to the end, or the coffee and grappa at the table of the feast today, is the Bodhisattva vow. Another way of understanding it is what I think is something that we can continue to explore and play with. But here's a formulation of it. I will renounce my escape from the messy human social togetherness towards an abstract realm of personal freedom. I will renounce this in order to recommit to the world and do my part to reduce the ignorance and suffering of all beings to the best of my limited abilities by working with the knowledge and practices available to me and to this world. Turn back from dreams of escape, dear ones, and do your part. We think that ideology is something blurring, confusing our straight view. Ideology should be glasses which distort our view. And the critique of ideology should be the opposite, like you take off the glasses so that you can finally see the way things really are. This precisely is the ultimate illusion. Ideology is not simply imposed on ourselves. Ideology is our spontaneous relationship to our social world, how we perceive its meaning, and so on and so on. We, in a way, enjoy our ideology. <laughs>